A, it went up 80% on the rumor or optimism of approval. You have to factor that into all this. If you go from approval day on and you're like, what have you done for me lately? You have a major perspective problem. You need to get outside, touch grass, read a book, get in a relationship, find something else to do. Eric, you've really been pulled into a, you've really been pulled into crypto Twitter. You're talking about touching grass and I, I love it, man. If you are an Empire listener, hopefully you've played around on chain. And if you have done that, you know that transferring assets across different chains is a pain, to put it nicely. That is why we are incredibly excited to have the Wormhole Foundation as a partner of the Empire podcast, stewards of the Wormhole protocol, supporting over 30 different blockchains and six different runtimes. Stay tuned later in the show. We have a cool thing that you can claim, which is a Wormhole NFT just for Empire listeners. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. Here at Empire, you know that Santi and I are really into real-world use cases and always on the lookout for the next killer blockchain app. We're excited to share that PayPal has arrived in crypto to unveil a way to seamlessly connect fiat to digital currencies. Later in the show, you will find out how you can use PYUSD to check out at millions of online stores. What's up, everyone? Before we jump into the episode, little plug for Digital Asset Summit coming up in London, March 18th to 20th. Tickets are pacing so far ahead of schedule that we had to decrease the discount code. So instead of Empire 20, it is now Empire 10. Head over to the website, Digital Asset Summit, Das London, March 18th to 20th. Use code Empire 10 and get 10% off your ticket. See you in London. All right, everyone. Uh, welcome back to Empire. We have a uh... Two uh, new, newly famous folks on the scene, I would say, Matt and Eric. Have uh, how's the how's the celebrity uh, you know status been to start the year? <laughs> Incredible! I get into all kinds of parties now. Yeah, do you go? Do you go to the grocery <laughs> store? And I, I people are like, is that, is that the Bitcoin I ETF into guy? Play, they started clapping. I got free milkshakes. It was, it's been great, man. I got to be honest. Game <laughs> you know, has its perks. Have you thought about what you're going to do Nobody, once this? Uh, yeah. yeah, this is this is a very, very, very niche kind of celebrity status. But I'd say our goal was to build a new audience. And we clearly did that within the crypto world. Um, we were did. preliminary ETF people. Since the BlackRock filing drop, I've been, we, James and myself have, have definitely grown our audience. And, and that was, um, you know, our, our big goal. So, um, you know, well, we covered the shit out of it, though. Like, we really worked hard and obsessed over it. And it was only us two. We quarantined ourselves. The rest of the team was not allowed to cover it just in case we went that crazy. <laughs> we were like, yeah. we need someone to be here in case we lose our minds. Uh, so we had to sort of separate them. And they started you know, making fun of us for our obsession, especially around the odds. They were like, oh, did you guys see what Gensler had for breakfast today? Did your odds go up by 0.001% yet? So um, we definitely got grounded a lot by the rest of our team. But we have to cover everything. And we gave this a lot of mind share, uh, especially yeah. compared to how much assets it will eventually get, which is maybe one to two percent market share. Um, but yeah, that was our goal, and, and we did it. So I'm, I was really happy, especially after they proved it. We stuck our neck out. So I couldn't have been more pleased with the whole thing. Um, yeah. There's a couple of little annoying parts, but mostly it was great. No, you guys did a great job at Bloomberg. So we've got Eric from Bloomberg, Matt from uh, from Bitwise back on the show. Both have been with us in the past. Um, Eric, maybe um, I'd just be curious to hear your take on like, you've got these two groups of Twitter who have never agreed on anything in their life and they're finally coming together. You have the uh, 
the 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 Bitcoin crowd of ninety eight percent of their life savings in Bitcoin, and they are frustrated with you because uh, when moon right, Bitcoin has not been skyrocketing, and then you have the uh, the uh, you know the economists uh, by day and uh, shit posters by night who have um, the FinTwit crowd who is also saying this is an underwhelming launch, and they are agreeing that this is an underwhelming launch, and I would just be curious to get your take on that. Yeah, this has been fascinating because. I'm all, I'm just the guy who's been like no you know had his nose to the ETF grindstone for almost 20 years. And I've seen launch after launch. In fact, they come out so fast you miss them. There's been since in the past 6 weeks there's been like 120 ETF launches. We've only talked about 10 of them, but there's been 120, right? And most of them have do nothing. I mean, they're like crickets. They're lucky to get a million dollars in trading. So here here come these. They trade 50 to 500 times the norm, <laughs> not percent increase, but times. And the people are unsatisfied. And I, I realized that there's two groups that are mainly crapping on it. It's the econ twit um, and just general people who, who hate Bitcoin. They like to troll the crypto bros. So this is a great way to say, man, these are underwhelming. It sort of signals to the rest of econ they're cool, and it basically trolls the crypto bros to going crazy because, oh, my God, what did you mean it wasn't successful? So I get why they would do that. There's, that's their motivation. The When Moon crowd, they were, like, thinking, oh, my God, we're going to get this, like, huge God candle or whatever, <laughs> the God candle. And, and it kind of flattened. It went down a little bit. There was a sell the news kind of event, and they're all, like, trying to investigate Wait a second. The GBCC outflows kind of match the inflows to the ETF. The other ones, there's no new net buying, and they're you're playing Sherlock Holmes, and they're frustrated because they wanted that bump. Two things on that: a, it went up eighty percent on the rumor or optimism of approval. You have to factor that into all this. If you start, if you go from approval day on, and you're like, "What have you done for me lately?" You have a major perspective problem. You need to get outside, touch grass, read a book, get in a relationship, find something else to do. Because Eric, you've really been pulled into a, you've really been pulled into crypto Twitter. You're talking about touching grass, and Dude, I, I love it, man. I know my kid uses that. It's I don't want to lose Twitter. you. I don't want to lose once once this ETF is done. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to go back to covering these other boring ETFs? No, as Matt knows, as an ETF analyst, you're you travel all over the world, so I will be you know making my business. Don't worry. But my kid and I actually have had some terminology crossover between between my journey into crypto Twitter. There's definitely some overlap with his words and, and crypto Twitter. But anyway, um, you know, I'm a 60-40 investor. Uh, I'm happy with 7% a year. So the idea that you could still be at 50% or something year to date and be bitching and moaning is insane to me. So there's that kind of perspective. Now, every time there's a run-up, like when the Fed is supposed to lower rates, there's a run-up in the stock market before the Fed announcement. Like this is what happens in markets. There's a run-up before an expected outcome. So there's a seldom news event. Second, there's been a lot more um, buying in flows than there has been GBTC outflows. But the numbers and the volume is so dramatically off the charts and abnormal. I'm not really sure what planet people are from that, that it's not enough or they didn't think it, they thought it would be bigger. Um, certainly there was a lot of hype. 
and maybe it's just underwhelmed compared to that. But that's a relative issue that I can't yeah. help them. With. I can only go with reality and the past and numbers. And this was like top 0.1% ETF launch ever. Can you put some numbers around that, Eric? Sure. So if you go by, we'll go by flows, right? So the newborn nine, and again, I separate out the newborn nine because GBTC coming over and is, is a fully grown adult. You know, launching a new ETF is like sending a little baby into the Amazon jungle. It's got nothing. And to actually survive alone is is a is a is a great. To get actual big, you are now a total warrior. GBTC came came into the jungle with like a, a mansion, armed guards, all the food it wanted. Like it's not fair. So GBTC is a separate entity. The newborn nine, which again, these are all first ever, have taken in three billion dollars. They've traded about $6 billion. <laughs> Those are crazy numbers. So the volume alone, that's $6 billion, that's more like that's like multitudes more than all 500 ETFs launched last year traded combined, like at pick a day this week. They trade about, you know, maybe close to a billion dollars, the 500 of them together. And these guys are, you know, these guys have done $6 billion of that. They're averaging more than the 500 combined, basically. So it's hard to do this in the first couple of days. And the other thing I'm mentioning, which I'm about to tweet out, and Matt is going to get a kick out of this. This is amazing to me. The volume usually on these big hyped up launches, it starts high and it comes down like 25% a day. And then you hope it's, it, it settles into like 70 million a day or something like that. You'd be happy with that. It went up today. So today, all of them are trading more than they did the day before. That is a really good sign. You never see that. That tells you there's legs here. It's not just like some hype thing that like fizzled away. So I can't think of any like there, it would be hard to find a better, better data. Hmm. Matt, why do you think this was so successful? Because people want to own Bitcoin. I mean, I hate to be <laughs> as simplistic as that. Why but... are people? Why is number going up? More people are buying than selling. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, come on, uh, Coinbase had more accounts than Charles Schwab, Robinhood, E-Trade, interactive brokers combined. Americans want to own Bitcoin and an ETF is arguably the easiest way to do it. And with the fee wars that we saw uh, with people pricing down to 20 basis points as Bitwise did, it's arguably the cheapest way to do it. So uh, that's a huge unlock that that brings new people into the ecosystem uh, and encourages people to convert. And I'm with Eric. I think there's real sustained demand. I mean, we're just starting to get turned on at major platforms. Uh, we're just starting to have conversations with advisors. They're just doing the due diligence. But, you know, we're doing whatever, 100 meetings with advisors a day at Bitwise. We're one of 10 firms. Uh, I think it's going to build over time. I actually think those volumes, they may level off for a while, but they're going to come back up. I think it's a massively successful one. What does that mean getting turned on at platforms? Like getting on the, you know, I guess not Vanguard, but on the TD Ameritrade account or on the Schwab account or what, what does that really mean? Yeah, or on the big national wirehouses, right? Like everyone's goal is to get on Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, UBS, and Wells Fargo. <clears throat> they take a while to do due diligence on new products, but they're doing them quickly. And then below those big four, there are smaller platforms, maybe that host independent RAAs. And those are starting to turn on this week, next week, next mm. week. So the right way to think of an ETF launch, people assume it's like the door swings wide open and everyone can go through. 
it's not how it works. The door opens and Eric knows this, maybe 30%. And then you get turned on at all these other platforms that host investors. And, you know, after a period, it could be weeks, months, or a year, then the ETF is fully available to everyone. And that process is going on right now. It's, it's going on faster than I anticipated. Hmm. Matt, take us inside the the room of like these fee, the fee conversations, basically. So I think it was Fidelity who came out at 39 bips. Um, and once they came out at 39 bips, everyone started, I think it was refiling. And I don't really know how that process worked, but pulling it down to 30 bips and 25 bips and 20 bips. And what was happening in the room at Bitwise? Because there, there's a calculation, right? It's do we, how much more will we get? If we pull it down by this and it's, you know, if, if you increase by 50%, you got to go down by 10% or whatever the, the math is. It's a math game. So what, what was actually happening there? Yeah, there was, there was a, a huge amount of game theory. It was a lot of fun and very exhausting. The, the way the SEC was orchestrating this process was all the issuers had to update their filings effectively at the same time. So you had to turn over your card and say what your expense ratio is. And so at Bitwise, I mean, we were we were thinking about the personality of the people at every firm. Uh, we were thinking about where they might price. We were trying to reach out and figure that all out. Hmm. We were committed to being on the low cost side. We did have an advantage in that we have an existing infrastructure for our business, right? We've been running crypto funds for seven years. So we're not adding a crypto trading effort or a crypto research effort or a crypto sales effort. So we can afford to be very aggressive on price. But, you know, fees matter in ETFs. That's a lesson across the industry. It's not the only thing that matters. It was vitally important for Bitwise to be one of the winners. And we're happy that we launched at the lowest fee. That certainly helped us. I'll say the exhausting thing about it, Jason, would be, you know, we would finish this whole process, game theory, different personalities, different economics. We'd come out with our price. And then the next day, everyone would refile and Hunter Horsley would call me at 6 a.m. and we'd have to walk through the whole thing all over again. It was it was it was, it was totally exhausting. Damn you, Hunter. Yeah. It was really nice uh, when they finally launched. Yeah. Eric, do you think that I think everyone loves to rag on the SEC and Gensler and stuff like that? Looking back in hindsight, do you think this process was a good process? Yeah, it was so unique, it's hard to compare it to anything. I mean um, it sounds like the SEC uh, worked hard. Looks like from the changes, there were like I mean, six or seven amendments. Um, I don't agree with everything they did. I think in kind should have happened. Um, I think some of the risk disclosures were a little absurd. But outside of that, um, looks like they worked hard to get these things into playing shape. And everybody, especially during the holidays, I had this, you know, remember we were on that podcast with Stephen, uh, the Valkyrie guy. He was saying, this is the government, like, they don't work a lot on the holidays. So once we got to like Christmas time, I was like, man, you know, I got a little doubt because I thought, okay, this is where maybe they punt or they have arc withdrawal. Cause anyway, it seemed to me, and I, but I was getting wind from my sources that they were working really hard and that people were really outside of the two holidays worked a lot that week. And the SEC had deadlines that were in the middle. Like you know, a lot of people had that week off, but they had a deadline in the middle of the Christmas to New Year's week this is all a good sign to me and I, I give them credit. I, nobody wants to work around that time, but they did, they got it done. And so at the end of the day, it was fine. Where, where, where I think they probably could have like started earlier, maybe on some of those details. They also could have, um, I think that the, the tweet and the hack, I'm not sure I can blame them. We don't know exactly what happened yet, but 
the rollout wasn't great. Then the, the sort of angry, you know, I, I, yes, we approve these, but I hate it letter from Gensler. I don't know. I mean, there was one little note in there that I thought was a little silver lining, which is, look, I mean, if you're going to do it, these are probably the best way to do it because, you know, I know he likes ETFs. I was at a, at a conference where he spoke. Um, it was a, like an investment management conference. And I, I was actually one of the speakers and he was speaking, I don't know, like an hour before me. And he went through all the stuff he had. He was going to all his plans, private equity advisors. When he got to ETFs, he didn't really have anything. He was like, you know, these are good. They've served America. Hmm. So I know he likes them. So I think that at the end of the day, he came around finally to what we all thought, which is you don't really have to trust Bitcoin or even know what it is or whatever. But you can trust the ETF and the people in the industry to give investors, you know, one of the best deals possible. And that's exactly what he came around. I think but we yeah, knew this 10 yeah. years ago. It took him a long time in the court case to come to that same conclusion. But anyway, so I can't really, I have no really like angst towards the SEC or anything. It looked like they worked hard. Um, and there were some issues that Gensler was going to have like a last minute rug pull. This is where it was difficult for James and I to hold the line because it's easy at, in the last two weeks to throw out a call option, which is, you know, Gensler could do a rug pull just so you have that timestamp in case they do. You can go, well, I said it. James and I purposely did the tough road and said, don't say anything, any shit like that. Let's just go all in with our 90% odds and say, we're not going to entertain that. People are working too hard. It would be too weird and out of, out of character. And then when the mainstream media started reporting from different sources, they had it. We also felt um, you know, like it was going to happen. But the last day, there was even some loops thrown with letters withdrawn and the fake tweet. Um, it was an emotional roller coaster mm. for sure. But yeah. they got it. They got it done. And you know what? When Elizabeth Warren put out her angry tweet, like the 24 hours later, Bitcoin's awful. I can't believe they approved the ETFs. It was great. It was like I felt nothing. <laughs> I had immunity because it's too late. Yeah. I felt the, I felt the same way. I was like, I was like, oh was my god, so what a joke! Yeah. Scroll nice past this one. That way. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. it was like again, war is over. Yeah, like 10 years of war. 10 years of having to like be captive to people like that, knowing that they just hate Bitcoin um, and there are other ways to get access to it that are not as good as the ETF. And you know this and you have to just have to you just have to deal with them having this opinion. And it's you have no choice in the matter. It's all over. And yeah. it felt good. And I felt like weight was lifted. And now we have immunity. I, the, Gary's letter didn't bother me. Her tweet didn't bother me. I, I just feel no more frustration. And it's awesome. Yeah. Matt, take me into, um, I love that, Eric. Matt, take me into like the nuts and bolts or maybe like the plumbing of some of these ETFs. So I have a couple of questions here. One is, so everyone's focused on the fees because that's like the cost to the user, right? What about the cost to Bitwise? So when I think about the cost to you guys, there's custody costs. There's, I'm sure, I don't know how much you pay like an AP or like the market makers to buy the Bitcoin. Like if you take the you know, on 20 bips. So a hundred million, oh boy, mental math here, 20. That's, so that's what 200 K to you guys or something of 20 bips. Like some, some amount of that goes to a custodian. Some amount goes to the people, uh, you know, the, the desk who's trading for you guys. Like what are the costs here? How do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the largest single cost is custody and that cost declines as the size of the fund grows. So these funds become, mm -hmm. 
uh, more profitable as they get to be a billion or two billion or and that's a billion. deal that you've structured with coinbase or whoever your custodian is to say you know at this amount it's 10 bips at this amount it's five or whatever it may be that's the way that's the way all custodial relationships work generally is that is the more scale the lower cost and that's true in crypto as well it was true before etfs it's true in etfs beyond that the primary costs are like audit your administrator mm. and your tax because you have to send everyone a 1099 but those are relatively small. The biggest single cost is custody. The trading fees, um, those are sort of uh, outsourced. They're, they're, they're embedded into the spread of the ETF, which has right. been very small, which has uh, been great. It's been trading a penny wide on BITB. So the real costs are custody. The way to think about it from a business perspective, again, Bitwise was fortunate that we have this existing business that we just layered this on top of. This is not an interesting product from a financial perspective directly until it's, you know, multiple billions of dollars. But it does become a good product financially from that perspective. And more broadly, it opens other doors, right? We're a complete crypto asset. Yep. But, you know, I suspect these will be products measured in, in the tens of billions of dollars. And at that level, even at 20 basis points, 20 basis points on $10 million is $20 million. That's... Um, that's material revenue, maybe maybe less for BlackRock than it is for Bitwise, but it's not a bad business. Yeah, not a bad biz. It's a real business, and I, I think that's where these products are going. Yeah. Um, for on the custody side, do all of you guys pay the same amount? Because I know everyone pays, or a lot of people use Coinbase. Do you know? Is everyone just, or is that a negotiation? And you don't really know. I actually don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if they would tell us. Yeah. Um, well, can you tell us how much you guys pay? Like what the percents are, or no? We can't disclose that, unfortunately. So those are those are, are restricted items. Um, but uh, but you know, Coinbase. There's a reason everyone went with not everyone. Eight out of the ten providers went with Coinbase. They're the largest. They're the most established. And this is a market where you want the best heart surgeon and not the cheapest heart surgeon. And uh, and Coinbase has been that. I mean, th there are other interesting plumbing aspects of how how these ETFs are designed that are different, but most of them ended up using Coinbase because they're, they're yeah. great at what they do. Um, I'm not sure if this is a question for you, Eric, or, or for Matt, or for I mean, either of you guys can answer this, but what happens when you purchase a share of an ETF? Is that, what's the back end? What's happening there? Like, who's that trade getting sent to? Where is the Bitcoin settling on chain? Is it OTC? Like, can you just, why don't you guys just walk us through what's actually happening here? Yeah, I can take a shot from inside Bitwise's perspective, and maybe sure. Eric can, can add some broader ETF commentary. I mean, when you individually buy a share of an ETF, it's like buying a share of Apple stock. You're buying it from someone else who's selling it, right? Um, what, happen, what, what you're really asking is when new ETF shares are created, how does Bitwise acquire Bitcoin to represent that? That's right. And, 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 and the way that works, there are these, there's this group of authorized participants who are able to create new shares when they sense new demand in the market. So if they sense new demand, they're able to create new shares to facilitate that demand. Uh, mechanically, what happens is at the end of the day, uh, they submit what are called creation orders to us, which says we want to create X number of shares. And once those orders are accepted, which for us takes place at 2 p.m., they wire us cash. So like on day one, we got $237 million of cash, of, of, of fiat currency, of dirty fiat. It's a nice, it's uh, a nice feeling. <laughs> that's right. Well, once we get it, uh, we have to go out and acquire Bitcoin. 
And so the way we do it in our trust, and this differs from different ETFs, but we have listed Bitcoin trading counterparties. And these are big firms like Jane Street, and DRW and Macquarie and others. They're listed in our prospectus. And we'll go out and we'll put them at competition with one another. We want to buy $200 million of Bitcoin. What's the best bid you can get? Then we'll take that and put that in competition. Are with you another. calling them? Are you emailing them? Are you messaging them on Telegram here? Uh, that's that's the trading team. They use a variety yeah. of different uh, of different tools. Uh, our trading team, for what it's worth, is is X BlackRock uh, from from their bond desk. Mm. Um, so they have deep expertise in this. But you're putting it at at work against one another, and then when you get the best price, you agree to that price and you purchase the Bitcoin. For what it's worth, uh, on that day one we acquired you know two hundred thirty seven million dollars worth of Bitcoin, we got it at like single digit basis points above the bid ask wow. spread. There's wow. a lot of liquidity there. Um, the next step is the Bitcoin has to get to the custodian. The way it works is our trading partner. So let's say it's XYZ Corp that we agreed to buy it from, deposits it, sends it to the custodian. And once it arrives at the custodian, we release the cash to them to settle the trade. So the trust never is on the hook. It has the Bitcoin and then it releases the cash you can find those transfers online. We're not able to disclose them at the moment, but you, if, you, if you're deep enough in crypto Twitter, you can find people who are attracting wallets that have gathered a lot of Bitcoin recently. Yeah, well, th- uh, that, was, that was actually my next question. I was, I was looking at the mempools and, the, and just like transactions basically on, um, on the Bitcoin blockchain and the like transaction fees, the mempools, like they weren't, it wasn't really spiking. So I was trying to figure out how all of this Bitcoin was bought, but the uh, a the Bitcoin price didn't really fluctuate on that day. I know what Eric was saying, which is like it was really the lead up. But if all this Bitcoin was being bought, why didn't that spike? And why didn't the transaction fees and the mempool spike as well? Yeah, yeah. One one nuance that's maybe not obvious is these authorized participants sense that there's demand throughout the day, mm-hmm. and then they don't actually, you know, the Bitcoin isn't acquired by us until the end of the day. But the market makers may know that it's coming, so they can build positions throughout the day. So it won't show up for them on a single transaction. And the broader reason is Bitcoin's a very liquid market. I mean, even buying, you know, a couple hundred million dollars of Bitcoin is a lot. But Bitcoin trades billions of dollars every day around the world. And it has for a long time. And there are a lot of ways to facilitate those transactions. So this market is more liquid than many people give it credit for. And I think that's why you're seeing it it process fairly normally um, through all the systems. Yeah. Yeah. And can I jump in here? Yeah. Yeah. And I should probably, I should probably like do something with this. Um, we used to show this chart cause Matt knows this. There's, there's people who are like, Oh, um, ETFs are the tail wagging the dog and like stock picking is over because every, because all the stocks are in ETF, the flows in the ETF will make uh, dispersion among stocks go away. Long story short, some of the ways we dispelled that was showing like GE stock, over the course of a year, when like bad earnings came out, it like tanked. And then we showed the flows of ETFs that held it and index funds. And the flows could not do anything to stop the tanking. Um, they were inflows coming in to buy GE. Now, would GE have gone down a little further? Probably. So I would argue in this kind of a scenario, if you have sell the news people, because who are players who were hedge funds who bought GBTC, maybe wrote it up and they're selling any kind of sell the news or GBTC selling that flows into the newborns at least are making it less bad. 
right? So th- this yeah. happens, right? It, w- it could, would be way worse if it weren't for the ETF flows that are net positive at about a billion dollars. So it's it's like somebody else is doing it. And I put that meme of like the call. We, we've traced the call. It's coming from inside the house because it's coming from because I was like talking to the crypto people. This is on you, buddy. Some <laughs> somebody in your world, I don't know who it is, some whale or just a bunch of degenerates. They're selling the news here. That's overwhelming the ETF inflows. So just like GE could fall despite ETF inflows and, and disprove the tail wagging the dog. These ETFs are not going to wag the dog either. There are many other elements going on. Over time, they should help, um, I would I would think. But the, one other point to make, the other whole thing, GBTC outflows, newborn nine inflows. So even though the newborn nine have taken in more than GBTC outflows, there definitely is some kind of an offsetting. And I don't know how many people are like refugees from GBTC who have found a home in, in one of the newborn nine. Let's call that 30% of the outflows. Um, I don't think it's there. I think a lot of hedge funds, you know, game that discount and they're going somewhere else. They don't use ETFs a ton anyway. <clears throat> that said, ETFs are going to steal from everywhere. Like when ETF, like VU is the Vanguard 500, right? We track its flows. It's taken in $35 billion or $40 billion last year. Probably some of that came from mutual funds. And those outflows from mutual funds and the inflows to VU they are net mm. zero demand on stocks. Mm. We still track VU inflows. Mm. If we tried to offset every flow that ETF stole, we'd go nuts. It's just they steal from everywhere and that they will. There'll probably be flows coming out of the Canadian ETFs. There'll probably be flows coming out of Coinbase. There'll probably be flows from definitely from GBTC. Anything that's high cost is, is going to get some of its uh, lunch stolen by the ETFs over time. But GBTC is like a great example. To me, it's playing the role of the high-cost mutual fund in this little universe. I think that's a great example. Although I do think over time, the impact is going to be really significant, right? I mean, ETFs just collapse the cost of accessing the space. They've opened up the market to many new investors. I, I've, I've used this analogy before, but I think it's like the having. Like, number don't go up on the day of the having. Number goes up in the years surrounding the having as people price in the having and then it has a sustained effect on the supply demand dynamic and i think the same thing is true here number went up significantly into the run-up of etfs on the day of etf launch the week of etf launch it's been sideways and meh but over the next year i think it's going to have a a really substantial effect hey everyone wanted to give a big shout out to today's sponsor wormhole foundation stewards of the wormhole protocol if you are like santi and i and you play around on chain you know how bad the cross-chain experience is today. Well, Wormhole has set out to solve that, powering cross-chain transfers for over 200 different multi-chain teams, including some of the best like Uniswap and Circle. So what does that mean for you, the Empire listener? This opens up a huge number of multi-chain use cases across DeFi, NFTs, governance, oracles, and more. By supporting over 30 different blockchains and six different runtimes, including SUI, Solana, different ETH L2s, Ethereum, and a whole bunch more. That means you have now the most powerful interoperability platform at your fingertips. If you're a developer, you'll be excited to hear that Wormhole provides an extensive suite of tools and infrastructure so that you can securely build multi-chain applications. But don't just take our word for it. 
obviously. Wormhole Protocol leads the industry in all-time messages transferred with over 900 million cross-chain messages. 900 million, that is close to a billion, and that's a big number of messages. As a thank you, Wormhole Foundation is dropping exclusive NFTs. That's right. We got some exclusive NFTs for Empire listeners. Hit the link in the description to claim your unique Wormhole NFT today. The days of not using crypto for really anything in the real world are over. It is time to start using crypto in everyday transactions, whether that's shopping online or just buying a bagel on the street. We're excited to tell you about PYUSD, PayPal's entrance into Web3. PayPal is proud to share an open letter to the crypto community that outlines their commitment, their roadmap, and their goals in the digital currency space. PYUSD seeks to transform how you interact with your digital assets. Available today, you can send your crypto to your PayPal account, swap it for PYUSD, and then use it to check out at millions of stores. PayPal invites you, all the Empire listeners, to be a part of this journey. Hit the link in the description of today's episode to read PayPal's open letter to the community. It gives you a really good sense of what their vision is. Take the next step by signing up for a PayPal account today. The future of crypto payments starts with PayPal. Is there a framework that you can use to say, uh, to think about the flows into Bitcoin ETFs and the impact that has on the price of Bitcoin? No. Uh, I mean, ARK has done the best research on this, uh, friendly competitor. They, they put a 30x multiple. I think that's probably too simplistic. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's dynamic and probably exponentially shaped depending on the size of the flows. So, can, can you say more about what that means? Well, I, you know, I think I think it, at very low levels of flows, it probably has no impact. It's just it's just added into the mall or very limited impact. I think if it had overwhelming rapid flows, you would see enormous price appreciation very quickly. So I think it's it maybe thirty x is a nice average, but at uh, a billion in annual flows, maybe it's one x, and at a hundred billion mm-hmm. of annual flows, maybe it's a hundred x, and and price goes insane. Um, just because of the way sort of dynamic pricing works in traditional markets, it gets exponentially harder to source liquidity. So I suspect it's something like that. But but ARC, ARC came up with that 30x multiplier, which is, I think it's feasible. It's also important to note that ETF flows directly aren't the only impact. There's also the fact that I think the approval of the ETF will grow the ecosystem in general over time. So I think there's a mm. effect too. Eric, you mentioned Grayscale or uh, GBTC outflows. Do you think the outflows will just continue over as they keep their, you know, their fees are what, 1.5 and compared to Bitwise, which is, you know, 20. Uh, so they're you know, seven and a half times higher <laughs> here. So um, will the flows just continue out? Yeah, look, a lot of people are trapped in there and it's a, they're going to yeah. have to play with this dilemma of whether to realize capital gains or stomach the 1.5%. And the math probably is going to favor staying in there for many of them, to be honest. Yeah. Um, now, over time, and if if there is a little bear market for the next six months, that's that could open up a lot of those captives. Same thing with mutual funds. We've estimated about a trillion dollars is just people who would leave if they could, but they're just sitting on too many gains over like 30 years. And so this is, again, GBTC is really playing the role of the high-cost mutual fund in a parallel way. So I think there'll be a steady bleed. I don't, I don't think there'll be like, you know, $10 billion out in one day. But so far, it's been um, about a half a billion 
a day. Um, but the, the discount's narrowing, and that's good. I think maybe you'll see that level off a little. Um, but I would, you know, looking at that flow chart, I think it'll be a while before we see we inflows, if ever. Um, and that's going to be their decision to make. They're going to have to wrestle with the fee versus the flows because, let's face it, I told people this. If you're uh, shopping for a car and the same car is like $21,000 or $150,000, <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, that, that is too extreme. Now, you could say, well, Grayscale has liquidity, um, options on it, yada, yada. But even at that price, it's a tough sell. I, that's why I think BlackRock coming at 30 kind of – everyone had to tether to that because you now everybody has to go out and explain, well, I can get BlackRock at 25 or 30, you know. Wow. Yeah. You can probably get up to 45 before it's just undoable with, you know, your, your pleas of, yeah. you know, hey, I'm an expert or we do this other thing or we will donate to this organization. But there comes a point where that, that like give is over. And I, I think it may be 10 bips and they're like, mm-hmm. what, 120 bips. <laughs> so they're like way beyond the elasticity of a fee, a fee obsessed advisor, in my opinion. Mm. Maybe we could switch gears a little bit to just talk about like broader role of Bitcoin in investment portfolios and like actually on the monetary system, zooming out even more from that. Um, and Matt, I'd throw this one to you. So if you look at the historical portfolio, like the 60-40 portfolio, and then I think in the last maybe decade or so, it was you added alternatives. And originally, maybe alternatives, if you were a pension or something like, like that, it was maybe 1% allocation. And over a decade, as alternatives outperformed, it became maybe, okay, we're comfortable with 5 to 10% actually in alternatives. Uh, the number I see going around with you know, Bitcoin or crypto allocation, let's call it just Bitcoin right now, is 1%, sometimes 2%. If you look towards the future, like how do you think that role of Bitcoin in the portfolio changes? Yeah, we think 5% is the new 1%. Uh, at least that's what we're seeing amongst a lot of our clientele. We see people up-leveling their Bitcoin exposure. There, there are a number of reasons for it. Um, one is it's gotten cheaper and easier to access. That actually makes the asset class more attractive. Uh, the second is you have a longer track record, which reduces the sort of binary risk of failure. And that was one of the primary things, keeping things at 1%. And three is that just statistically, if you strip the name Bitcoin from it and you look at it from a historical perspective as an asset, uh, it's done exceptionally well. It's the best performing asset in the world, plus one, three, five, 10, 15 years. It has very low correlations. It's extremely liquid. Um, so I think it's going to find a, a slot in the one to 5% range over the next three years in a lot of portfolios. I think it's going to be mm. hard to deny. Um once you get above 5%, you do start impacting significantly the volatility of your overall portfolio. It becomes a big driver of your maximum drawdown. But at 5% or lower, that's not true, uh, at least historically. And I think it's going to have a big impact. I'd add one more thing. Uh, one of the reasons most people have kept their alternative exposure relatively low is it's been extremely hard to access the best version of alternative exposure. It's extremely hard to access top-tier venture capital. It's extremely hard to access top-tier private equity. One of the beautiful things about Bitcoin, you can own the same Bitcoin as Paul Tudor Jones. It's extremely easy to access. And uh, therefore, I think it's going to be sort of help drive 
uh, a growth of an alternative sleeve as a normalized part of every portfolio. I think it's going to be pretty. Do, pretty you, do you have a sense just from these conversations that you're having, whether that 5% flows out of equities part of the portfolio, out of bonds, out of alternatives? Where does that come from? Yeah, it's mostly out of equities. People think of it as a, a risk asset with high volatility, which is fair. And therefore, they're drawing it primarily out of the equity sleeve. Often, it's replacing or complementing a high-tech exposure. I think it could relative, it could easily belong in alts, but many people don't have an alt sleeve. Mm. Um, and so, equities is the most common place we see it drawn from. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to just also go on the alt concept here. I do... I do think it's an alt to certain people. I think if you're an advisor or um, I'll use advisor, I think, because they're the classic 60, 40 types, you know, again, I think there's a little uh, pocket in the portfolio for highly speculative stuff. We call it the hot sauce bucket. I think it fits there. I don't think it fits in an alt bucket to an advisor or a regular sort of non-institutional investor. They're not big fans of alts anyway. But what they what they do, you know, advisors always worried about career risk. So I think the Bitcoin ETF does a couple things for them. One, it, it gives them something else to talk about. It differentiates the portfolio a little bit. It also cures any possible FOMO complaints down the road. Like, oh, why didn't you put me in this? It's now up to a, a whatever price. And I think also if they're trying to impress the kids of the boomer clients, this may look like, hey, I'm I'm cool too. Um, so there's there's a there's a couple reasons I think it makes sense that are cult, totally different than the way an institution might see it as an alt, and a way to sort of like bring the sharp ratio up in a portfolio. I think advisors are going to see it more that other way, um, and there's no there's no problem with that. Arc is the classic case of putting a little hot sauce on the sixty forty. What we found that is the more passive grows in portfolios the more there's a demand for the exact opposite. And that's where Kathy Wood, in, in ironically, was built on the shoulders of Jack Bogle, even though he would have not liked her program. She is totally complementary to a Vanguard portfolio. Vanguard portfolios are great, but the problem is you got to wait 30 years to really feel the magic of compounding. And your board is bored to tears in the meantime. It's like watch, literally watching a tree grow in your backyard for 30 years. I mean, you would go nuts. So this occupies you a little bit, and there's nothing wrong with that. In, in my opinion, this is actually a behavioral hack to keep you from touching the, the stuff that's got to grow. Matt will say this should grow too, and I don't. I think it it, it should. The other thing is <clears throat> in the hot sauce that has to grow. Like if Kathy Wood's right, and we've got ro- uh, taxi ro- automatic, you know, robot taxi cars, and uh, you know, all this you know futuristic stuff then you need to be disciplined in a very volatile investment to fulfill that dream. The core of Vanguard Holdings is awesome for giving you the intestinal fortitude to hang with the volatile stuff. So this to me is a great compliment. You know you got the serious stuff and the vegetables covered with Vanguard. And you don't need to sell the Bitcoin or the ARC when it crashes for a year because it's not the main thing. Hmm. And this is a big deal. And I think that's how I would position this in a portfolio. Um, the Vanguard will give you the stomach to deal with this. <laughs> I uh, thought we were all quitting Vanguard. I, I thought that was, uh, yeah. I thought we're, I thought we're all supposed to leave Vanguard. I'm about normal people, not like 
all in. Hundred. If I showed you my portfolio, Eric, you'd be an unhappy, unhappy man. <laughs> I, I love it. I mean, I'll just add. I'll just add one more thing from Eric's normalized view, which is that uh, global equities are a hundred trillion dollar asset class. Crypto is a one trillion dollar asset class. If you don't have one percent in crypto, you're underweight. You're short. You're below the global normal baseline allocation. If you're at two percent, you're overweight. But if you're at zero, you're severely underweight. An asset class that's part of the global capital mix. I know Vanguard doesn't allow its clients to uh, to access it, but their philosophy of just owning the market would lend yourself to want to own this one trillion. What, what happened behind the scenes here, Matt? Like, why do you think that Vanguard? It, it's a. It really didn't make sense to me. Even if you don't like Bitcoin, you know. It, do you have a theory on why they? I, you know, I, I don't know. Is is the short answer? I wonder if Eric has a a, a theory. Um, they don't like gold. They don't like non cash flow producing assets. But they've never restricted those before. I think it's. I think it's a a reactionary force. Maybe they're worried people will abuse the ETFs or something. I'm not sure. I don't know, Eric, you? Yeah, it's a ph- just philosophical. <clears throat> um, I don't know. It had to come from Buckley. I mean, this is something that <clears throat> they're probably hearing it, about it on the phones a little bit. So it has to be upper management. Look, they do let GLD trade on the platform. So <clears throat> I called them and asked them about this. First of all, Bogle and Vanguard generally don't like commodities because you don't get earnings growth and dividends or a coupon. Like in stocks and bonds, <clears throat> your money literally works for you. Which, by the way, the crypto people really should understand that I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go all crypto uh, because you, you don't want to put your whole thing on a commodity. It's only worth what someone else will pay for it. Not that that's bad, <clears throat> but Vanguard said that the reason GLD was allowed was that it actually had a use. So this tells me this is like a pretty classic wow. boomer disdain thing. And you're going to have a lot of that. Um, I've seen it elsewhere and it's just the way it is. Matt, one time, the first time I went to Index Universe conference, I got to tell you this, (laughs) Matt Hogan and Dave Nadig are up there and they do this incredible PowerPoint. The PowerPoint's the size of a movie theater screen. So it's like, and they use pictures. They don't use charts or the worst is bullet points. This is fun PowerPoint. And I remember they put Bogle's face in where Obi-Wan Kenobi was. They saw him as like the um, sort of good force in the industry. So I got to think Matt is feeling a little conflict here between the sort of Vanguard disdain and his new career. I'm just curious. It's like when you meet your, it's like when you get too close to your heroes, you know, and you like, you realize that they're not really all that you made them out to be in your head. You know, (laughs) this is why I asked him, he wrote the intro to my Bogle book and I I wanted him to because. Vanguard and Bogle and mutual funds seem boomer and boring, but crypto seems interesting to young people. And I wanted Matt to split the difference. And he did a perfect job of like somehow understanding Bogle's greatness, but yet also recognizing that you can disagree Hmm. with him and still take some of his traits with you on this new journey. And there are a lot of overlap between Bogle and crypto. There's a lot of spiritual connectiveness where they disagree, though, is in investment philosophy, I think. Um, that's where it breaks down. Mm, yeah. But I think spiritually, there's some overlap there. 
It's actually going to be really interesting once the ETH ETF comes out, which I want to ask you guys about next. I know we're running up against time here, but um, because ETH, like ETH, do, you know, I've got quotes around this, like does something, right? It's got, again, quotes around this, like cash flows. It's got like dividends. It's got yield, whatever you want to call it. And there are companies built on top of it. Um, and I think in like boomer zone, like Bitcoin is just like, they're like, oh, we have, we have gold. We don't need another digital gold. Like, I don't even understand the internet, whatever. I got gold. But ETH is just like a tech investment, basically. So it'll be interesting. What, what do you guys think is realistic for this ETH ETF? Mm. Eric's missed predictions. So well, um, we're at about 65%. We haven't dove into it, but we, 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 we talk quickly. We say, okay, two thirds chance. The, the big, we're hanging our hat on two things. <clears throat> They approved ETH futures. So if you want to come at me with the whole securities thing or whatever, it doesn't matter. They already approved ETH futures. Ipso facto, you get sued if you don't approve it. And Grayscale is one of the people with with the filing. They want to convert their trust. So we're kind of in like a deja vu and BlackRock filed. And, you know, they're not not messing around. So that's the pro case. The anti-case is Gensler's rebuttal. Basically, was like, don't expect anything else for a while. Um, we hate everything. You know, don't ask about other coins. But I think he just needed to vent. I think he needed to be on the record to all his Democratic friends that um, I hate this. Yes, I did it, but I hate it. Believe me, I'm with you. I don't. I think he was harsher than reality will dictate down the road. So I could see one coming out in May. Yeah, Matt, wow. are you guys expecting May? I would love to see it. I think I think ETH is harder than Bitcoin, has more moving parts. You have this question of staking. You have less clarity on the regulatory process. So we're optimistic in the next, let's say, 12 months. But I think it's more challenging near term than uh, than many people think. But I'm, I'm hopeful. I'd love to see it. Nice. Um Will you guys inter- will when you guys launch an ETH ETF, will it have staking included? I think that's a question that the industry is working through. One one challenge with these ETFs is that they're grantor trusts. You can think of things that go into grantor trust as just sort of sitting there, mm. and they have difficulty doing things. And uh, staking is a thing you do, and so that that makes it difficult within the required structure. It's not necessarily impossible, but I'd be a little bit surprised if the first ETH ETFs have staking attached to them. Nice. All right. Um, to- one, one, just to, this is just to plant an idea in Matt's head. If ETH is a security, could you not do an, a 40 act? <laughs> you could force the issue and file both of them, right? I, I would. Why not? I love it. I love it. This is some, this is some good e- ETF, uh, way, right? ETF nerd talk right here. Is, uh, <laughs> is what's going down. <laughs> um, yeah. All right, I'm gonna make uh, both you guys. By the, way, by the way, Matt. Okay, so this one guy who I like, he, he writes, and I because every now and then someone would be like one of us to me, like someone from crypto world. And um, what's the ETF equivalent of Laser Eyes? Because I wanted to award that to this one person from crypto Twitter who's really gotten into the ETF thing very well. But I don't know what the equivalent would be. Wow, yeah, I got to think, think about, about that one. Yeah, I'll think about that one. That's a good question. It's a good question. Uh, all right. Two rapid fire questions to end this. First is um, to both of you guys, how how in the in a 12-month time horizon, okay. so for January 2025, how much larger will the Bitcoin ETF market be than it is today? 
Five to ten X. What's the date? January eighteenth. In a year. Yeah, in a year. <laughs> okay, so and Matt, we're, we're gonna are we at twenty? Are, are you counting GBTC? No, no. Okay, <clears throat> the newborn nine. Newborn nine, which are at, at what? Which are which are at what today? <clears throat> right now, they're three. Three billion in assets. All right, so Matt says fifteen to. Probably, probably, yeah, probably five, four to five X, I would say. Four to five X. Yeah, so that would be three times five, 15 billion. That's where we were. We said 10 to 15 billion in flows. The the wild card here is the price of Bitcoin. I mean, if Bitcoin doubled tomorrow, those will all be worth six billion. But I'm looking at flows. That's the hard stuff. Yeah. I'd say 10 to 15 billion would Mm -hmm. be a really good first year. And they're already at three. I agree, flows. And we think Bitcoin's price is going up this year substantially. So AUM will be higher. What to what price, Matt? Are you is your compliance? We're on the record of saying we'll set a new all time high. We think it's gonna to top eighty thousand this year. Yeah. Um all right, last rapid fire. I know we've got a minute left. Are you both excited for Das London? Yes. <laughs> yes. I was just talking about it with my team today. I'm fired up. First of all, the speaking lineup really does look absolutely incredible. So kudos for pulling that together. And uh, 100% wouldn't miss it. Uh, I don't Eric, know. You, uh, you're, you're on the speaker list, Eric. About. I am. Is this the thing on the, on the 14th of March-ish? 18th of March, but you're close. <laughs> yeah, I got to tell. It, was, it you, was it you who asked me to go? <laughs> couldn't, couldn't tell you. Couldn't tell you. Okay. I, I don't think I can go. I could go remotely. Um, there was supposed to be a, a, a Bloomberg event, but that got pushed. So I was only going to do it because I was in town anyway. So I'm because I got to go back to London like a month after that. So I'm I probably can't go. I, I don't know. Maybe I'll go twice. We'll see. But I'm probably just going to have to bail. Eric, come. That, that is not here. the answer. That is not I, I the answer our early. event marketing team was looking for, Eric. That is not the answer. <laughs> oh, 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 right. well, <laughs> Matt. By the way, Matt is starting the first ever. Crypto to TradFi Dictionary, which you got like six words already. It's brilliant. That's what right. would this event be in the TradFi? Like you have to map it for me. Oh, I have to map it for you. It's it's an elite gathering of top minds. Not, not you know, many thousands, but extremely high quality. Think, like Morningstar ETF? No, it's, um, hmm, hmm. It's a good question. What is the equivalent? What well, you, you wouldn't say inside ETFs US? No, it's more elite than that. I would say it's more elite. Like, um, salt, 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 salt. Like that. Salt's a good example. Salt okay. in the early days for crypto, I think, is okay. a good example. Gotcha. Early days salt. Yeah. There you go. Without Lenny Kravitz. Eric is back on the table for London. All right. Good place right. to end yeah. it. Eric's coming to London. We love that. Uh, Matt, Eric, uh, <laughs> thank you guys so much for the time and congrats on everything. And Eric, nice work being right so much. Thank you. Good to see you, Matt. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Don't forget to claim your free wormhole NFT exclusive to Empire listeners. Hit the link in the description of today's episode and fill out the form to claim your unique wormhole NFT today.
everyone thank you so much for watching today's episode really hope you enjoyed it we wanted to take a second to just remind you about our upcoming digital asset summit in london march 18th to 20th santi and i got your back seats are limited if you heard it earlier in the podcast there's a little competition running at blockworks to see who can drive the most number of tickets so when you register for the digital asset summit make sure you use our code see you in london